0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, welcome to the best of the minefield from 2022, the last of the best of the minefield from 2022, because it is now, of course, well into 2023, and we will bring you new content from next week. We are back in action. So we really have to dig deep to find the appropriate show for the last best of you've got to, it's like in a relay you hand it to your strongest runner at the end
0: oh really and so you this, think this I, is the best Do you think is the best to last yeah
1: so that's that's the voice nice. of scott Stevens, by the way We'll daly is my name yes oh, shut up uh, this this might have been my i think this is my favorite yeah where does it, you disagree? No.
0: Look, I love all of my children, will I, I love them all. Well, no, there are a couple duds last year, but for the most part, for the most part, I really, really love my, this was a great one. I mean, it's from, we discussed a topic that I think is important to both of us, namely political humor what mm. political humor can do what it can't do and what happens when political humor is everywhere
1: yeah and what it shouldn't do and what it shouldn't do that's a nice way of putting perhaps it perhaps what it should i should point out it was the suggestion of our guest Yes. he's a wonderful guest uh, at a, a university in the UK and so whenever he's in in town we'll figure out a way, and he suggested this. And and maybe that was the secret. Maybe we needed someone else to come along and suggest Tell them, us rather to than do. being yeah. left to our own stupid devices.
0: So anyway, uh, here it is. We really hope you enjoy this one, and we'll be back with brand new content next week.
1: Today will be fun, I reckon. Mm-hmm. And I know we've traversed some of this terrain before, oh, however many years ago now, I can't even remember. But I also know, I reckon two things are true. One is that you can't get enough of this topic. Yep. So we could actually just make the show about this every week. It would be a completely different show, but you could absolutely do that. But the other thing is I kind of feel in a way it's the phenomenon that we were talking about has become more pervasive in the intervening period. I don't know if you would agree with that, but there was something about the momentum that gathered behind it during the Trump presidency and I think that has kind of carried on, that means that this is as germane as ever, perhaps even more so. Do you agree with that broad I do. assessment?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for, for internal, cultural, social, even aesthetic reasons, that's true. But I also think for technological and formal reasons, that's become yep. true as well. In other words, we're kind of dealing with the double whammy. And when those two things come together, and it's not a good thing, then, yeah, we're really in trouble. All right. Which Mm. things are we talking about, Scott? We take, you know, one of the many things I think that binds us together, despite our (laughs) obvious differences on just about every conceivable level. (laughs) But the two of us really do care, I feel, about the conditions of our common life. And one of the things that I keep coming back to is at the heart, at the etymological heart of the word conditions is the image The notion of speaking together, of speaking with, the the spaces between us within the moral conditions that we call democracy Mm. can never be taken for granted. It's one of the many reasons that I've just come to hate some of the ways that we've elevated words that should not be used anywhere near as much as they are uh, and even sort of turn new words out of them like impactful or impactious or... Mm. You know, I think the words we speak are really important. The way that we cultivate the conditions of our common life should always be at the front of our shared concern. Because the way we speak one another influences, it shifts the way that we see our common world. It changes, it modulates the way that we can come to address and find ourselves answerable to other people within our shared political community. So how we talk, the words we use, the adjectives that we use to describe other people, the tone, the tenor, all of these things are central, I think, to the preservation, the cultivation of something like a healthy democratic order. So it concerns me very, very, very deeply that one of the distinguishing marks of public or political speech within a democracy that I think has the rightful claim of being One of the more significant, one of the more important and precious forms of speech within a democracy, namely the ability to find and to use humor as a way of lowering some people, of raising up other people, of creating conditions within which the barbed speech of some is no longer taken seriously and the maybe light speech of others is given its proper importance. I mean... I love the fact that in the earliest stages of the kind of democratic uh, effulgence and then its final sort of resurgence and emergence as a proper uh, political order, I love the fact that those periods were also defined by a resurgence in some of the finest comedic writing. If one thinks about, you know, the satire of Jonathan Swift, the acerbic egalitarian humor of Mark Twain, in our century, two writers who I love most, Muriel Spark and Gertrude Stein. I mean, these are comedic writers of the highest order who are unintelligible, unthinkable outside of democratic political orders. So I think it's right that democracy has always called for, has always invited a degree of humor as a way of taking some se- things more, maybe more seriously than We ordinarily would, and making things that seem to be serious much, much lighter, much more kind of playful, silly, absurd even, than they are. But something's happened over the last two decades. If we were to plot this, I think we could probably go back to the 1990s, when a great deal of the reporting concerning, say, Bill Clinton uh, was taking place on shows like Jay Leno, when... There were things that were so absurd happening within politics that it felt like the only way to do them justice was to sort of talk about them in a kind of, you know, bawdy, irreverent, uh, inconsequential, even sort of boys sniggering. I mean, I don't know if you've – there have been some remarkable documentaries of the Lewinsky scandal and just the misogynist humor, say, that was given full vent – During those years under the under the cover of, you know, kind of democratically snickering at the woes of uh, president. I think that's probably where it begins spiritually, at least in terms of its kind of inner logic. But one of the things we've seen over the last two decades has been the merger of political comedy and political commentary to a degree that I think has corrupted our political language and has unleashed a number of profoundly troubling moral questions at the heart of political comedy itself. And I think something that has enabled that, something that's fueled it externally in terms of the formal or technological elements, is that so much of late night television, so much of political comedy itself is made for social media. Even if it's first broadcast on t- on TV, it's made to be... What was what was the show we did a couple of years ago will the clipification oh, of everything. Clipification. Yeah, it's yeah. it's made to be clipped and circulated. It's, it's made to be shareable. It's made sort of to things, be shareable yeah. and to go viral. Therefore there needs to be something about it even if it's delivered in original TV format there's something about it uh, that is designed to be sort of widely shared and therefore it has to have that edge that barb. Can I identify do. what it is that makes it shareable? I this don't have it. a sense of humour, so I'm, I'm actually really eager to... <laughs> no, no, it's not
1: about the humour, actually. So this is obviously not a comprehensive account, but one of the key elements... This is a long-established um, observation, by the way. It's not original, but... Is that we share things that reflect well on us. So we share things that make us look cool or cutting-edge oh, or, or of a particular fashion or political opinion or whatever it might be. And so what you are trying to make if you want something to be shareable is something that will reflect well in some way on the person who is doing the sharing and given that one of the ways in which we establish in contemporary political discourse anyway the way that one of the ways we establish our our own credentials and our own status is through a kind of derision this is even outside of the world of comedy hmm. right? it's about picking the right people to deride hmm. that's right and showing that you are on, quote, the right side of history or the right side of an issue, whatever it might be, then it follows that clips that are being made to be shareable or at least that have that operating in the background of the creative process, even if they're not forefront, those clips will necessarily embody that ethos, right? They will be derisive, they will be sharp, they will be sassy, they will be preferably brief, not too complicated, And so, for that reason, this this is the comedy is the perfect vehicle for that, right? If if I'm trying to think of how do I do what might be a, a sort of fashionable takedown of something, then one of the best ways you can do that is to make it funny, because then not only do you look cool sharing it, people enjoy watching it because they laugh, right? And laughing is a pleasurable experience. Comedy is like perfectly designed, I think, for that mode of political discourse. So I think two things are happening at once, which is really fascinating. One is that political discourse is changing. It's becoming shorter form. It's becoming less tolerating of ambiguity, Mm -hmm. um, I would say. It's become uh, just snarkier, right? Could you say
0: contemptuous?
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Or if not contemptuous, then something just short of that but along the similar path, Mm -hmm. right? So comedy is really good for that. It's the perfect vehicle to encapsulate that, so we shouldn't be surprised at the sort of increased space that comedy is claiming within political discourse. The other thing that's happening, I think, is the revolution within comedy. So everything is being politicised in life, right? Our conversations are becoming more deeply political. Part of the standard political move, particularly in progressive politics, is to render things that we never thought political suddenly Mm. political Mm. as a way of being radical or, uh, you know, mounting a kind of structural analysis of things or whatever. And so as a result of that, the imperatives within comedy have shifted markedly. It, It is no longer enough if you want to be celebrated as a comedian merely to be funny. You must be saying something. You must have something to say. You must be shaking up something or punching someone, preferably down in the sort of orthodoxy of comedy at the moment. And it's really sorry, interesting. punching play... down or punching up? Well, um, sorry, yes, yeah, sorry, yes, you're right. Punching yeah. up—that was a complete mistake. I, I, was, was, I was wasn't sure if you're s-
0: sort of if that was politically speaking or morally speaking. Because if it's morally yeah. speaking, it's always punching down. Well, yeah, that, that's right. Yes, no, that's a good observation. There you go.
1: My mistake yielded something productive. Okay. So that's happening within comedy, and I notice this because I'm just struck by the number of conversations I have with comedians, even comedians you wouldn't think who sort of confide in me out of the side of their mouth that I just want to be funny. Hmm. Like, I I just want to go back to just being able to be funny. (laughs) And they've noted that that's not allowed for them anymore. Now, that's overwrought. It's not that you're not allowed. It's just that you won't be celebrated. Someone like Jerry Seinfeld becomes a really interesting figure in this regard, I think, because here he is, a legend of comedy, obviously, who now has nothing to prove to anybody and no need to be remunerated for anything. He's got more than enough money. There's nothing really at stake for him. And he has become this figure who is now the defender of the joke for the joke's sake. Hmm. This idea that, no, I'm going to do comedy and I'm not going to apologise for the fact that it's straight white middle-aged man comedy or anything like that. I don't need to tap into any of the kind of fashionable tropes of the day. I'm just going to be funny and I'm not going to apologise for it. And if you try to make me apologise, I'm just going to look back at you and say, sorry, not apologizing. It's a really interesting position he's kind of carved out within the culture of comedy at the moment, but it's only possible because of who he is and who who he's been. For a newcomer to do that, it's very difficult. Yeah. So I'm hearing this consternation among comedians now, and I've noticed a shift just in myself, actually, as a consumer of comedy. So I, I used to be someone who would definitely value a comedian who was saying something, making some kind of social comment above a comedian that that wasn't all things being equal, right? That, that I would prefer that. I would say, yeah, that's a higher class of comedy. That's better. And now that I've been given everything that I asked for, I recoil from it and say, do you know what? I've just realized, I don't want my political comedy or my moral philosophy. Sorry. I don't want my political analysis or my moral philosophy being done by comedians (laughs) because I don't know that they necessarily know what they're talking about. (laughs) There are far better people to get that stuff from than comedians. I think those two dynamics happening at once is what's fascinating about the moment. And I think it's ended up, if I may be so bold, corrupting both. It's corrupted political discourse and it's corrupted comedy. And I think both of those things are tragic because I quite like both of those things. I I think they're both... Really, really important. But you can't disentangle those two things. No, it's true. It's, it's, it's not just a question about political culture and political conversation. It's also a question about comedy and then about culture and aesthetics and all the things that are kind of
0: attendant to that. Okay. So I'm super eager to get our guest in, not least mm. because our guest proposed the topic to us that we've been talking about for way too long. That we've just massacred. That we've yes. just massacred. But, <laughs> but 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 just before we do, I think there are two things you've left out. I don't disagree with anything that you just said. Me not being a consumer of comedy. I just I, I cannot imagine buying a ticket and seeing a show. I can't imagine willingly sort of tuning into or deliberately watching a comedian performance. I I just can't imagine deliberately doing watching. Yeah, deliberately watching, <laughs> as opposed to it just going in the back or or me being tied to a seat with my, you know, eyelids taped open. I <laughs> oh, I just can't shit. imagine a voluntary act on my part doing that. I just it just doesn't interest me. One thing you said, though, is that the politicization of comedy means that that comedians have to say something about the cultural moment. They have to say something political or quasi-moral. The other thing that, of course, does is as soon as comedy identifies, say, sacred cows or taboo spaces, then one of the internal impulses, I think, of a great many comedians is then to find whatever that sacred space is, to find whatever that sacred cow is, to find whatever that taboo is, and to run over it as many times as possible, to do something sort of really transgressive. But then when you are in that position where the sacred cow isn't the thing that is there, if you like, organically within the common life of a people— But it's something that's been erected through a form of prevailing political morality or political discourse. And then it becomes this desire to try to transgress without transgressing too far and thereby finding oneself canceled. I think there's a very, very strange, almost self-defeating, bordering on nihilistic dynamic that that unleashes uh, without any rhyme or reason apart from much of comedy's inherent desire to be transgressive. There's something else, though. I'm not, I'm not sure if you sure think it's about quite that. Right. No, it's it's not. But if you think about someone like, well, no, I don't want to begin doing examples. But if you think about someone like Ricky Gervais, who's discovered a whole new form. Did, did you just say you don't want to do an example and no. then proceed to well, do it? Well, no, example. because if if I say I don't want to do an example, it sounds like I can't think of anybody. So I need to say that I actually have thought of somebody. But he's okay. invented or discovered a whole new form of anti-PC, or. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way of putting it, of anti-PC transgressivism that is bordering on the unspeakable. And yet, for precisely that reason, he can achieve an audience that simply wouldn't have been there for that style of comedy otherwise. Yeah, but he has to be Ricky Gervais to do that. Yes, that's right. Something else, just really, really quickly. So, one of my favorite philosophers, Stanley Cavell, I've mentioned him before. Mm-hmm. He has this... He's up there with Aristotle about this he, show, by the way. He, 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 he really is. Uh, and he, Iris Murdoch. He's Simon Vein. and Iris Murdoch. I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not tatted up, but, you know, if I were to sort of, you know, yeah, it would, it would be terrible. He has this lovely notion. He has this beautiful description of Walt Whitman's moments of... Bodily exploration, in other words, where he talks about the inner lining of the intestine, for instance, the lovely little red jellies that are inside of every precious human being. These moments where he's discussing farts and excrement and all, you know, all these things that are just part of human life. He says the poet, Stanley Cavell describing Walt Whitman, says the poet here is a parable of human commonness. Well, that's a phrase I adore on every conceivable level. Because on the one hand, it's saying commonness as this is just, it's something that we all have. It's something that is part of the baseness of human beings as such. But it's also something that we share. There's something absurd. There's something preposterous. There's something ludicrous and illogical and silly and petty and noble and dignified. About every, You know, my favorite type of comedy is seeing someone in state dress walking down a slippery hallway and just that tiny, slight little stumble, just that little foot not quite catching on the ground. And then suddenly someone who is at the top of human power just having a silly, ridiculous little foible that is a parable of human commonness. To my mind, there is something profoundly, irreducibly irreplaceably moral about that style, that variety of comedy, which is why I also like Jerry Seinfeld. But there's something about the dynamic, I think, of comedy, especially as it runs through the genuses of, say, satire and mockery and sarcasm. And you referred to it before, something about that comedy gathers people together, And it orients them contemptuously against a shared object of common derision. I think there is something base about that kind of faux solidarity or about that sort of opportunistic solidarity at the expense of somebody else that then has a further dimension, which I find politically really troubling. And that is by orienting people in common contemptuously against an object of shared derision, you're also taking away from that object of derision the capacity to answer in turn. The only thing that someone who's the object of satire can do is sit there and take it and be derided, be satirized. Yeah, but, the, but the
1: argument is that the person who is the subject of that does all their answering all, all the time. They're the ones who actually set the agenda. They have that platform. And so th- this is why satire is typically directed at you know, the prime ministers. the Punching treasurers, up. Treasurers. Yep. I think the problem is that political comedy seems to evolve now. So it's actually punching around. That's exactly the point. That's um, it. It's not just the people with the flags on the bonnets of their cars. It's the people who drive pickup trucks or whatever.
0: Or vote differently or hold well, a yeah. different matrix of values.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that sort of thing. Mm. But that goes along with an evolution in political discourse, which is to see everything as an expression of that matrix of values Mm. and everything is therefore political and everything is therefore existing in a kind of hierarchy of power. And of course the people who are on the receiving end of these jokes may not see themselves as particularly empowered depending on what the comedy is. But nonetheless, that's the kind of cultural hierarchy that there is. I mean, one of the ironies of the way that political comedy has gone is that it tends to reflect the politics of those who are in cultural terms hugely empowered Um, Their values are the ones that are projected through popular culture, overwhelmingly, through Hollywood, through popular music, through, um, and of course, comedy, particularly comedy that is lucrative. So even the power calculations are... I don't want to say wrong. I would just say ambiguous. They're far more complicated. That's a nice way of putting it. it. All
0: right. Let's bring in our guest. Our guest is a great friend of this program. Robert Simpson is associate professor in the philosophy department at University College London. He used to be at Monash. He went overseas four years ago. He's back in Australia. We thought we'd seize the opportunity to have him here in studio. Rob, thanks so much for coming back on The Minefield. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I,
2: when the opportunity to come on the show came up, I thought, oh, what do I want to talk about? I, part of why I proposed this topic is I thought, I'd really like to hear while and Scott extemporise on
1: this
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think about the connection between comedy and political discourse. I have all these kind of nebulous frustrations. Oh, you know, maybe Walid or Scott would manage to put a fine point on those frustrations for me and then spare me the trouble. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we could draw a line under it now and just talk about other things. You guys have done a good opening stanza. Well, thank you very much. I know you've been sitting there scribbling
1: notes. This is the advantage of being able to see the guest. I know you've been scribbling notes. <laughs> through our opening
0: remarks. What have you written down?
2: uh, Just Stanley Cavell and farts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's, Uh, you
0: know what, that's the minefield for you. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, Scott's going to be ropeable when he realises that I've beaten him to the punch and got a Stanley Cavell tattoo. Oh, excellent. Mm, um, Sorry, Scott. Been there, done that. Um, Well, what have I written? I liked the line about faux solidarity uh, for sure, and the corruption of our political language. And yeah, I mean, well, your your suggestion that there are two things going on here in tandem about the changing nature of political discourse and the changing norms within Mm. comedy—that sounds right to me. Although I I worry if we talk about the second thing, we're just going to, you know, I find it very hard to talk about the changing norms within comedy without. Uh, you know, just going around in a certain predictable set of circles about mm. you know, um, so I'm not sure what to think about that. But but I want to I want to zero in on the first thing, the the stuff to do with clipification. So let me let me give one bit of background to start off with, and then and then tell give you a little analogy, and I want to hear what you guys think of it. So the the bit of background is, it just struck me like a bolt from nowhere sometime a month or two ago, that I have for as long as I've had any kind of conscious thoughts about it, I've believed that comedic interventions in political discourse other things being equal will have a positive outcome <laughs> right not not necessarily and not inexorably and not like a positive outcome of any great magnitude but that if you want to somehow make a political situation better like sprinkle a little bit of comedy into the situation and something something beneficial will result and it just struck me that i have no idea why i Treated that as just a, a fixed assumption or premise in my thinking about this topic. It's just, it's pre theoretical. You know, I started, I was tracing it back to the only thing. When did I start thinking about this relationship or it, being aware of such a relationship? I'm thinking about seeing um, old degeneration late show clips <laughs> in the 90s when I was, you know, I was a teenager then, but vague recollections of that. And then I have vivid recollections of being about 17 or 18 during the US presidential campaign. Uh, leading up to George W. Bush's election and watching late night um, Letterman, and they having this little segment, Great Moments in Presidential... What a
1: segment. It's an Extraordinary segment.
2: There's something about the, the comedic timing of playing this like bit of, you know, brass band music and then George W. Bush being clipped saying something ridiculous and then no, no punchline was needed. It was just... Yeah. I don't know. So there's these formative things, I think, built into my mind, this idea that good stuff happens when you, you know... Mm comedicised politics or something, or politicised comedy. But when I started reflecting on it and thinking, well, what, what are the actual... You know, there, of course there's possibilities that come to mind, hypotheses, there's this idea that we're disrupting unjust power relations or, yeah, sort of showing that the emperor has no clothes or trying to build some kind of sense of solidarity amongst people, you know, against injustices in the world, all these sorts. Of, I mean, there's, there's stories that we can tell about how comedy has a positive effect but I'm just not sure that I necessarily believe any of them. And I I was trying to gather my thoughts about this yesterday, and I think what I came to is that the question shouldn't be, can a humorous intervention in a political discussion have one of these benefits? The question is, does the humorous intervention, is it more likely to have those benefits than some other intervention that it's displacing? Oh, okay. So so for sure, a a well-aimed piece of satire can alert us to something about the the falseness or the pomposity of a particular political leader's rhetoric or something like that, right? Uh, I'm not saying it can't do that. The question is, how does it compare in achieving that goal to other modes of communication that one might use, right, to the very carefully argued, carefully evidenced Four Corners report that just lays out the the disingenuousness. or mm. and, and this idea that, well, other, I, I'm just not at all clear on why we should think the comedic intervention achieves its goal more successfully than other ways you might try to do it. So I have two thoughts on this. Mm. And, Scott, I don't know what yours would be, actually. But
1: one is... The way you frame that seems to presuppose a finite number of interventions, a kind of fixed quantity of interventions. Mm. So so the, the comedic intervention is displacing something else rather than merely adding another intervention that doesn't displace anything. Mm-hmm. I'd have to think about that because that assumption, I don't know if you mean to make it, but that's the way it sounds to me, I'm not entirely sure that assumption is true. But secondly... I think what you were grasping at in your pre-theoretical state mm. might also have been this idea that comedy has the capacity to achieve something and cut through something that no other intervention can. Mm. And that is that when, you, when it becomes something that you laugh with, it puts you in a more receptive state for ideas that you want to block, right? that you won't accept necessarily in a well-argued because what it recognises is that, and this is a really important thing to recognise that we always forget, especially people who have conversations like we do, is that so much of human conviction in every sphere of life is not about the mechanics of rational argument, but is about touching something of truth in our emotions, and that emotion is a pathway to certain kinds of truth. It can also be the opposite, but there is a kind of epistemic claim that emotions do have. And that what comedy is able to do is access that aspect of the human being at the same time as there's a kind of rational argument that's being made. So, if I can make this rational argument or make this observation, present this analysis in a way that triggers a happy emotion in you, then suddenly
2: you can. This is how change in people's thinking can occur mm. when, otherwise,
1: mm. when otherwise. I mean, I think
2: that there must be some grain of truth in that. And then for me, the question is how do the kind of emotions that are elicited by comedy, achieve that outcome of priming people to entertain ideas or whatever it might be, better or worse than other kinds of emotions elicited by other kinds of discourse.
1: Right? So what kind of
2: intervention do you have in mind? A, a sort of a storytelling intervention, right, which enlists people's emotions, primarily emotions of kind of compassion or empathy or something like that. And that's a, that's a different way of cutting through that isn't about trying to persuade someone with an argument that they should take this idea seriously it's appealing to their emotions, getting, getting them to see some truth in a, a situation by accessing the emotional centre. But unlike the, you know, the, the attempt to do the same through comedy, you know, the emotion that's elicited is one that maybe has a little bit more, I don't know, room for nuance. It's not as automatically polarising. When you try to use a joke to get someone to see a thought that's in front of them, it, it leaves you in a pretty binary position. Right? Either you're on board with the joke and you're slapping your knee or you feel really alienated. You know, when when mm. other people are laughing at something that you don't find funny or you don't accept one of the premises of the joke, it's not like you, you have a neutral feeling in response to that. Typically you feel
0: quite, you know, disdainful. and or, you know, or, in fact, when the object of the joke is something to which you feel a particular attachment or affection. I mean, mm. I always come back to sort of... I've mentioned Stanley Cavell, I might as well mention Aristotle, is his great observation <laughs> in the Eudemian ethics that one of the great forms, one of the great sources of anger, when somebody treats as ridiculous or as contemptuousness something that I regard as being precious or of great value, it's they're not insulting me directly, but they're insulting, insulting something that I, that I care about. That kind of joke that directs the full array of kind of political or social emotion against something that, okay, I might not be completely on side, but I can see the preciousness of it. There's something about that that isn't just alienating. It kind of, it defeats the whole purported purpose of actually mm. well, It's actually, it's actually worse view. than a joke about you. Yes, that's right. Mm. Because
1: it's a joke about something that you presumably regard as essential to you. Like yeah. it, it cuts to the core of something about you. But the the worry I have in going too far down this track, although I recognise the truth in it, is that you could very easily end up in a position where there's no case for a joke to be made. that's right. Because something sacred is probably likely to be at the heart of so many jokes that it becomes very difficult then. And I'm not... I don't know, I'd have to think about this, but do you want a culture like
2: that? This this is where I think... I mean, your first point before was about this almost zero-sum game assumption that was in the background of what I was saying, that if a comedic intervention is put on the table, it displaces some other form of communication. And to me... uh, I guess what I would want to say is that there's got to be some sort of healthy balance between the comedic way of responding to a situation and the the earnest way, the compassion eliciting way, whatever it might be. Out there in the, you know, now that we have a kind of an infinite number of platforms on which to express ourselves, of course, there's no, it's not a zero-sum game in terms of can the things show up in a publicly accessible form. Yeah, it's the opposite of that. But how much can we actually take in? Yeah, the, the attentional capacities of each consumer, right? And I think about myself compared to my parents at my age, keeping abreast of political issues. I think how many of the discussions that they were following and the broadcasts that they were listening to were laced with, you know, absurdism and satire derision and all these sorts of things compared to... And I feel like, for me, it's... Without consciously seeking this out, I feel like more than half of the political discourse that i consume is laced with some sort of comedic element and i'm sure that wasn't true I'm, i might be mm. wrong i might be mistaken about what the <laughs> what the materials they had access to were like back then but it you know and that's not it's if i wanted to fill my my week with serious earnest humorless discussions of political issues i could mm. right but i just i find without um consciously seeking out any particular Balance. that what I get is is something that seems to me really imbalanced. So what you've touched on there, I think, are the kind of structural properties of our
1: informational ecosystem. So it's not so much that political comedy has never existed before and that thought-provoking, in-depth political and and nuanced and perhaps even compassion or sympathy eliciting political interventions don't exist now. It's just that the platforms by which we gather all of these interventions are such that they... Privilege, comedic
2: interventions. Yeah, except that I want to. I do want to point the finger and blame certain actors in that ecosystem. I don't want to say it's just this kind of pat- amorphous thing. Yeah. yeah I, uh, so one one when I was thinking about, well, who's to you know, if I think there's a problem here, if I think something's gone awry. Who do I want to pin the blame on? I don't want to pin the blame on comedians and writers who are you know essentially just playing their trade and finding you know there's this. Um, well-known clip of John Stewart going on a a Fox News discussion program. Yeah, it must be twenty years ago now, and kind of taking these guys to task. And they say, "Well, what about you?" Like, you know, John Stewart was accusing Tucker Carlson and some other host of damaging democracy by having these kind of really frivolous, um, tribalized ways Mm. of discussing issues. And they were saying, "Well, don't you do the same?" And he said, "Well, I'm just a comedian." Yeah. I've never liked that defence, though. No, yeah. Tell me no, why. I suspect right. you do like it, but I don't, I don't like that defence. I'm I'm really ambivalent about it. Tell me, tell me why you
1: dislike it. Because he knows what he's doing, and he knows the effect that he's having, and he's actually presuming to have a greater position in our public discourse than merely being a comedian. he, he was kind of at the beginning of that. What was the term that they came up with? It was jokerism? something like that so in other words can there... see why that coinage died yeah. <laughs> well, <okay. laughs> Fair enough. but um, well actually I think it's not a bad coinage because it captures something right it was the idea was there is something new going on here mm. and a world is being created in which this is how a big chunk of people are receiving their news and their analysis it's not the old model if you like imaginary or otherwise where the mm. news had been received and now here's the topping right here's my riff on that thing that we all know no very often actually this is the presentation of it mm. of an issue. Like, it becomes a news bulletin. now at that point once those facts are established even if they're established in a way that wasn't what you intended
2: mm.
1: uh, aren't you doing something actually different and can't, haven't you reached a point where you can no longer just say but i'm a comedian therefore i'm licensed now to be as unfair or mm. as misleading or whatever I don't mean to say that John Stewart was being all those things. I haven't done the analysis. But as a principle, I just, I'm just not sure I can go okay. along with
0: that. Okay, hang on. This is missing something, though. And yeah. that's that the, the inner logic, I'd even say the communicative structure of whatever it is that you're going to call what goes on on most Fox News. I know some people who refer to it as performance art. Um, that, that seems just about right to me. Versus what goes on on a, say, a John Stewart. I mean, he's not still... He does have a show now, but you know. Um, no, but he stands yeah. in for a genre. Yes, is- yes. So the structure, the inner logic of what's going on in both instances is identical, which is why in some circumstances I'm prepared to draw a structural or even communicative or moral equivalence between certain forms of satire and certain forms of hate speech. Because the purpose of it is to array one's tribe of the already convinced, to array them against an object of common derision, to make the tribe of the already convinced feel more superior in their moral standing. And I think there is always that moral dimension both to whatever it is you want to call John, what John Stewart does and whatever it is you want to call what Fox News often does. There is a moral claim at the heart of it that simply is we are better, which is why these forms of communication are always punching down. They may not have that socioeconomic dimension to it or say gender disparity or power disparity, but there is a clear moral dimension to it. We are saying what we're saying from a position of truth-telling, value-upholding, and moral superiority that is fundamentally inherently lacking in that of our opponents, which is why by directing a certain form of communication, whether it be reporting on the appalling state of the corruption that's going on in wherever it is, or the subpar intelligences of conservatives or the the stupidity of racists or whatever else, the logic is exactly the same. It's arraying the tribe of the already convinced against a shared object of disdain and then denying them anything like right of reply apart from essentially laughing at the joke or kind of beating them in a position of acquiescence and fundamental obeisance. Uh, Both, in other words, are anti-democratic speech. Both are anti-political forms of speech precisely to the extent that they do not create the possibility of a shared world. They do not allow for uh, answerability. And again, just to go back to my beloved Stanley Cavell, (laughs) <laughs> one, one of the fundamental conditions of what he calls democratic morality is the principle that in a democracy, we are one another's teachers. There are very, very, very few people within a common political community about whom we can say they have nothing to say that I need to hear. There is nothing that they have to offer that I can't learn from And that I can't be taught by. So it seems to me that both forms of communication and this is why it's so in an, in an age that's saturated in contempt and contentious speech. This is why both forms of kind of high mind or, or sort of high imperious disdainful news broadcasting like what often takes place in Fox News and this kind of to my mind fairly low brow but faux sophisticated um, quasi political satire on the part of progressive comedians. I just find I find both so corrosive to the underlying conditions of democratic speech as almost being of sort of no value whatsoever.
2: So I, I want to can I say two things? I want to say a silly thing and then a serious thing. Although I'm worried now, I'm saying a silly thing. we probably I'm undermining my whole uh, <laughs> position. Right, so here's the here's the silly thing. You were, part of your criticism of this satirical approach, Scott, is that it's uh, it's it's sort of shot through with a kind of vehement sanctimony that somehow is has an anti-democratic kind of quality. And and I see the th- force of that. I'm worried, though, that if we rule vehement sanctimony out of bounds, we're just going to have to end the conversation today because, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I've been quite enjoying my sanctimonious. <laughs> um, I, you know, I want to be—I want to be allowed to be sanctimonious along with everyone
0: else. So, yeah. Yeah. vehement sanctimony, I love it. That's a beautiful. <laughs> I, I can't think of another radio show on which. And my next my, my next band is going to be called vehement sanctimony. <laughs> lovely, lovely, It's very catchy. vehement sanctimony and the moralizers. <laughs> okay, okay. So here's something where I think political comedy moments of genuine comedic virtuosity. Within an otherwise tense and unforgiving political environment, so I my earliest political memory after having come to Australia in 1991. Paul Keating was my first clearly remembered Bob Hawk meant nothing to me. There was just I just didn't, didn't register. Paul Keating, I was enraptured by. I just I'd never heard anyone speak publicly the way that he did. This moment, it's, it's now iconic, it's now famous within Australian political lore, when John Hewson, screaming at him across the desk, if you're so confident, Prime Minister, in your economic plan, why not call the election now? And Keating leans over the desk, lowers his mouth towards the microphone in the dispatch box and says, because, mate, I want to do you Slowly. Yeah. An extraordinary moment whose virtuosity is not just in the delivery, but in Houston's laugh in response. You, you know, Rob, the way you were talking before, and I, I love just about everything about your analysis, especially the kind of the fundamental point, what can political comedic speech accomplish that other forms of political speech can't? There are moments, however, where I think comedy ushers us counterintuitively, almost paradoxically, into almost nonverbal space. There's sometimes in political discourse, and this sounds bizarre, where words just get in the way. And you have those moments of, I just almost want to say, nonverbal inclination towards one another. Where despite the debate, despite the fierce and principled disagreement, a simple laugh at a barb directed at oneself, this kind of inclination that takes place one towards the other, that's a moment I think of profound political meaning, and tenderness that I'm not sure that can be achieved through ordinary political speech, apart from say, you know, delivering a eulogy at the uh, at the funeral of the death of a you know the, the loved one of an opponent. But uh, but I think those moments where there's simply an inclination. But I think that's only possible when what comedy does is it reinforces what I described before as humanity's commonness. This, this thing that we can share even if we cannot really give it the full articulation that it deserves.
1: Mm. Rob, have you heard anyone call Paul Cating's skewering of John Hewson tender
0: before? <laughs> no, it was wonderful. It was intimate. And, and, and Hewson picked up oh. the intimacy with a laugh. It was gorgeous.
1: Yeah, I wonder if that response is more on Houston than anyway. Let's not no, get I, to time I,
2: I like the thought. I, I mean, I, I hope this is not me uh, drawing the wrong conclusion from what you're saying, Scott. But where where I definitely agree with you is this thought that you know, comedy has its place, and the important thing is to put it in its appropriate place, right? And we could disagree about what exactly that appropriate place is, but it's it's somehow peripheral rather than central, right? There's a central, at least, you know, in political discussion, there's there's a discussion of what our values are, what we're trying to achieve together, what the problems we have to overcome are, what the injustices are. And then, you know, comedic interventions can orbit around those discussions and do certain things, right? They can elicit these moments of shared humanity in the, in the nonverbal kind of response. They can puncture a moment of, pomposity or sanctimony Mm, or whatever it might be. have got They've got roles to play. I I guess the thing that we're all sort of wrestling with is what happens when it starts taking up more space than that Mm, and occupying the centre rather than the periphery. So
1: can we go back to the point you made that I didn't let you finish, Mm. which was who you want to blame?
2: Oh, yeah. Right. So so I want to blame people who have the sorts of jobs and, and social roles that we have. Right. The commentariat. Okay. Rather than, I mean, so there's, there's a fuzzy line between the, the entertainment producers and the commentariat, right? Um, Increasingly. Yeah. Some of these thoughts, I think these kind of frustrated, critical thoughts for me have their origin in my leaving social media. Which was, you know, not some spectacular moment, just a quiet thing that I did myself. Are you I... sure?
1: Didn't we change the calendar? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah,
2: no, I now <laughs> I made a big sanctimonious post about. It. But no, I'm a I'm a university lecturer, and I'm in philosophy, and most of the people who I interact with are either philosophers or political theorists or legal scholars, and you know, many of those people are on Facebook and obviously Twitter. I wasn't on Twitter myself, but I used to be on Facebook and. Over a space of years, I just became more and more, what's the word, disheartened, embarrassed by the way that I saw people who have the same kind of job as I have behaving on social media. Just being frivolous and flippant all the time, trying to get cheap, you know going for cheap laughs, I suppose, would be one way to put it, or just constantly going for laughs, you know, needing to speak all the time, having something to say every day and more and more of the things that they had to say being, you know, just snarky, divisive, cheap, I suppose. And I think people have different pathways into this profession, but the everyone who teaches at a university has spent a huge amount of time in educational institutions as a beneficiary of those institutions, cool. just learning from other people, becoming the, the sort of custodians or caretakers of these intellectual traditions, right? We have to invest a lot of money as a society in Building people up to the point where they can be effective custodians of those traditions, and then to me it just looks like people are kind of frittering it away. All of this this knowledge and insight and a set of a repertoire of intellectual skills that have, that takes a long time to build up, and then you just get on social media and you act like any other low rent pundit, just making cheap observations, going for the cheap laugh, antagonising the easy target. Right, and more of it doing, you know, if you really want to lay it on thick, doing this during work hours when you probably should be, you know, meeting with students and answering your emails and marking the the work, you know, but wanting to somehow play to the gallery, uh, over time it made me it made me feel, I don't know, it dented my pride in in what I did for a living. Right now, and of course, not all academics are doing this, but when you spend your time on social media, you get this impression that this is what the whole the whole profession yes. is up to, and it's not just academics, it's journalists, it's writers, it's people in positions of influence in the corporate world, people working in marketing and PR departments and things. You know, there's a huge sway of the kind of highly educated tier of our society. It's the knowledge economy types. The knowledge economy types, the leaders in the the kind of knowledge economy, who are spending far too much of their time, as I see it, trying to play a social role that is at best, peripheral to what they should be doing. Which is partly... I mean, this is a whole other conversation about the imperatives of university
1: life and the sort of endless search for measurable impact in the... Oh. Which inculcates an ethos. Now, what's interesting about this, and I don't want to get too far on us, but, like, can we go so far as to say that this... The influence of comedy and the sort of ex- or the expansion of comedy in our political discourse has created an altered habitus... So that these are now, these are the rules of the road. These are our the dispositions that have kind of been inculcated in us by our environment now, such that whether we're comedians or not, that's just the way that we're
2: slowly changing our way, sorry, our, our mode of operation, our ways of thinking. I, I'm, I'm, there's something tempting about that thought. My reservation is that it makes it seem as though the people who get swept along with that were, you know, in some sense just, just, doing what their habitus insisted that they do and it simply isn't like that right it's mm. it's it's much more voluntary and elective than that makes it seem right people elect to spend their time on social media to play the snark game right so yeah, you...
0: sorry hang okay. on hang on yes. just well one quick step back but i think we're maybe this is a second order thing that misses the first or the primary phenomenon Which is when people do these things, when they write this way, when they engage in the snark, do they really think they are simply being snarky? Or do they believe that there is a kind of moral, an underlying moral seriousness beneath the snark? I, I, I would say that it's certainly within the humanities, even within moral philosophy. And I mean, we could sometime we should do a show about just what's happened internally, culturally to moral philosophy. But it would have been unimaginable three decades ago, four decades ago, for moral philosophers to be writing about the primacy of anger as a moral emotion or the aptness of contempt as a proper emotion. I mean, Kant wouldn't have found that whole form of moral discourse even recognizable. So I think what's happened first is that we've come to believe that in our political moment, anger, contempt, disdain, derision, even even in some circumstances disgust, is morally appropriate. And then these other forms of snark, of satire, of derision, which social media makes so easy uh, both to produce, to circulate, and then have rewarded, um, that then becomes the expression of what, for many people within the knowledge economy— are expressions of a, of a kind of deep underlying moral seriousness. It's right to be angry. It's right to be contemptuous against those people. It's right to the, be disgustful. The phrase moral seriousness,
2: I think, is a, a great way to sort of try to zone in on this, right? Because I I have no, no sense of professional embarrassment about my colleagues writing kind of deeply angry frustrated but careful intellectually rigorous critiques of what's going on in politics and doing that on whatever platform is conducive to the publicization of that critiques it's precisely at the moment where they lapse from doing that in a kind of a careful sort of i don't know what the what I'm looking for here is uh, sort of uh, when when they lapse into snark mm. and and playing to the gallery and scoring cheap points is when i think you're not actually doing the role that we've all kind of you know, that we need you to be doing, right? You're trying to play like you're... You've seen that it's for John Stewart or for the Chaser Boys or for whoever it might be, like, operating in this other register gets you all of this kind of adulation and energy. So you're saying they've adopted an ethos that isn't theirs for reasons that are base. And they've, they've I think, allowed themselves, in you know, with some sort of degree of disingenuity, to imagine that what they're doing is a public-spirited... Adjustment yeah. when I think it okay. isn't public experience at all. Hmm. We might have finally
1: reconciled both of you right at the end there. Interesting. Well done, Rob. That was very good. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Where did that time uh, go? Where did it go? Indeed. This is what happens when you I hope get the, on social media. I you have to list longer the time frames. <laughs> A 90 minute podcast <laughs> extra. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so great to have you on the show, Rob. Thanks very much for. Well, coming back to Australia and coming on
2: our show. Why Thank are you, you here? for indulging my sanctimony.
1: No, no worries. We'll see you again in five years or whenever it is you choose to visit us, perhaps after the next pandemic. Robert Simpson is Associate Professor in the Philosophy Department at University College of London. Our guest for this week's edition of The Field. we'll see you next week.